Amen. Good morning. It's Pastor Brad's birthday today. He doesn't want you to know he's getting older, but he is. He said 36. And that would be what you call a lie, deceit in the house of the Lord. We're in Judges 7 today if you want to start turning that direction. I got a lot I want to say today, so forgive me if I move a little slower. You're the worst listeners I know, so it might take an extra minute. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, we love you. We love your word. We ask that you'd shape us, mold us. Lord, would you accomplish all that you intend to accomplish in our hearts and our souls for the days ahead? We love you. Father, we ask that you make us better disciples of Jesus. We want to look like him, talk like him, carry ourselves in the manner in which he carried himself. It's in your most holy name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, we're turning to Gideon, uh, again, chapter 7, if you're still flipping. And we're really today going to approach the climax of the narrative. Gideon, again, lives in a day where Israel is surrounded by pagan nations. And as Israel has begun to worship false gods, God has allowed these pagan nations to oppress Israel. And so there's this injustice that's happening in the land as Israel... Uh, grows crops as they prepare for the days ahead, as they kind of labor for food. Uh, These Midianites and Amalekites, the scripture calls them locusts. They sweep in over the Israelites and steal all of their food. And remember, we said last time I spoke with you that, that the book of Judges is called Judges because God raises up these men and Deborah, one woman, to bring justice to injustice. So the injustice is... The Midianites are stealing the food of the Israelites. The judge will bring justice. And so God calls this young man named Gideon to be the the prophetic warrior who would overthrow the Midianites. Now, as we've read and studied Gideon's life, we've learned that Gideon seems to continually struggle with fear and anxiety and insecurity. Like around every corner, we find Gideon biting his nails and fear becomes a huge motif or a a huge theme in the story of Gideon. We are learning as we read this story that God is calling his people out of fear and into confidence, into courage. And so the very moment that Gideon's called, remember he's hiding in a wine press, beating out his wheat, and the angel of the Lord calls him a mighty man of valor. He is in the act of cowardice, right? It's like it's like you're running home from a bully crying and an angel showing up and saying you're strong you're like no i'm not um that that's quite literally the position we find gideon in in the in the act of cowardice and the angel of the lord says you're a mighty man of valor now there's a wild parallel here for the christian um because the moment i said yes to jesus god called me a saint god says he calls you saint and he and he um He speaks things about me that I am holy and spotless. And it's like all of my life, he keeps calling me saint. And it's like, I am in the act of wickedness, right? Like I'm, I'm in the throes of my own sin and guilt. And what we find is that God's, God calls me a saint. And for the rest of my life, he's teaching me, molding me, shaping me into saintliness. And so what you see today is not what I'll be in 20. You ain't seen my best years yet. He's, he's still working me into some things. And and that's what we find in the narrative of Gideon. From the start, God says to Gideon, you're a man of valor. For the rest of the narrative, he struggles with fear. 
And God is using the struggles to slowly form him into valor and out of fear. Around around every corner, we're kind of facing off with insecurity. And in our text today, we'll stumble into the same themes again. Now, remember that the uh, Midianites and the Melchites, at this point in our, in our text, they're camped in a valley. And the scripture says there's about 130,000 soldiers. And God told Gideon, who had rallied 30,000 soldiers, that he had too many. Right? And the, the first batch of soldiers who were afraid or shaking with fear, God told him to go home. Eventually, Gideon's left with just 300 men. Now, Gideon, who struggles with fear, has 300 soldiers, and he's supposed to fight against 130,000. Those are not good odds, unless the Lord is with you. So we're going to like wrestle through a few things today. The first thing we kind of want to consider is, um, if, if Gideon is called to become a man of courage and valor out of his insecurity and fear. Where does courage come from? What is, what is this courage, this strength, this interior fortitude that God's calling Gideon into? I want to say this. The world has taught us now for decades that we should conquer fear and anxiety through self-affirmation, uh, positive thinking, um, even psychologists now are admitting that this is a great uh, disservice to humanity. Like, if you just wake up every day and you tell yourself, like, I am successful and I am uh, I am strong and I am in myself competent, um, what that does to you is it actually creates a kind of stubbornness in you where you just keep walking around lying about yourself. Okay, it's like, it's, and this is what happens, man. You've got a family member like this. Like, they, they are so rude. And the moment you say, man, you, you hurt my feelings. They say, I'm kind. By God, I'm a person of kindness. And they just double down on their stubbornness about how great they are. And it's like, you're not. And so, um, even psychologists here today are saying, like, the self-affirmation, the positive thinking thing, it actually does more damage than it does help because you're just lying to yourself about where you are. And so, if we can affirm and establish that what God's calling Christians to is not this kind of self-help, self-perception of, of me being strong, and I'm courageous. What God calls Christians to, imagine this, now go with me here, is something called theology. Okay? And so the confidence, the strength, the courage that the Christian is being called into, that Gideon's being called into, is not a look, Gideon looking at himself in the mirror and saying, you're strong and you're bold and you're courageous, it's actually looking at God and saying, you're competent, and you're sufficient, and you're sovereign, and you love me with a steadfast love that knows no end, and you hold the future in your hands. The future belongs to you and no one else. And now we're building confidence and strength, not from looking ourselves in the mirror and saying, you're great, you're great, you're great, but by turning to the scriptures and finding good theology and what I like to call biblical prophecy, man. And what happens when, we, when we're called as Christians, we, every one of us, he calls us saints on day one. And for the rest of our lives, we kind of live disjointed. Like we're trying to, we're, we're trying to build consistency about what we believe into our souls. And, and for Gideon, he's there. God's saying, you're a man of valor. I'm, it's my battle. I'm going to use you. And Gideon's wrestling with his own 
inconsistency still. And we see this uh, in the life of every one of us. I, w- I want to show you a few things, theologically speaking, uh, that should shape the way you view yourself and view your future. I want to establish really plainly, one, the future belongs to Jesus. The, the world says your future is either in the hands of the enemy or up to wildly unordered circumstances, up to chance. The Christian says, my future belongs to Jesus. You have three options to believe. And I'm trying to show you that two of these options are anti-biblical. You can believe of yourself. I'm a victim of the enemy and his plans. Some of you believe that. We need to throw that out the window. You can believe the future is up to chance. That's what people call open theism, believing that God is not in charge of the future. We are not open theists. That is plainly heretical. Um, you, can, you can believe that about your life, though, that everything's just kind of op- open to chance and I'm rolling the dice. Or you can, with Scripture, believe that the future belongs to Christ Jesus. And when you begin to really believe, not just um, kind of checked off in your Sunday morning box that the future belongs to Jesus, but when you start thinking about your life in that way, you stumble out of fear and into what I call laughter. Now, let me show you a few things really quick. Psalm 2. You guys with me? Because, I, I, again, I just want to say a lot. I'm feeling really chatty today. Um, Psalm 2. I think this is really fun, okay? Uh, give me that on the scripture there, back there, Brandon. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Listen to this. He who sits in heaven, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury and say, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. When when the enemies of God plan and plot and gather and attempt to overthrow God and to, to distort the future, the enemies of God, the world, demonic entities, they plot together about how they can control, manipulate the future. And God in heaven chuckles. God in heaven giggles. Now, I, I want to show you this, and I know this seems almost like, uh, what is the word? It almost feels like I'm, I'm, I'm being too silly, but I'm, but I'm not. Um, God has a pleasure and a delight, a jubilant perspective concerning the future. He, he does not bite his nails when our political systems seem to fall apart and they're trying to lobby against the word of God and, and great philosophers rise up to claim that they've now established through their logic that Christianity cannot be true. God does not bite his nails. He literally chuckles. And he just goes, you guys are ridiculously dumb. I, I want to show you Proverbs 31. You guys remember the Proverbs 31 woman? We used to talk a lot about that. Proverbs 31 woman is righteous and just. One of the chief characteristics concerning the Proverbs 31 woman, I'm trying to throw you, show you a theme in Scripture. Give me a Proverbs 31 verse 25. Um, is this. Strength and dignity are her clothing. So she's strong and dignified. And she, she does what at the time to come? She laughs at it. She laughs at the idea that her future should be something she should be scared of. This is the opposite of anxiety. This is speaking of the days to come with great joy. Not because you've looked in the mirror and convinced yourself that you're competent and will conquer all things. Because you've looked long enough at the scripture and believed the prophetic narrative that there is a day 
coming nigh, drawing near, in which all things will be made right, and I will be finally betrothed to the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who loves me with a wild, infinite, beautiful love. There is a great banquet right around the corner. What do I have to be nervous about? This is biblical Christianity, the transition from fear into laughter concerning the days ahead, because the future belongs to who? Belongs to Jesus. Now let me show you one more thing before we get to our text. Maybe ten more things, depending on how I'm feeling. Okay? Um, fear is not the Christians. Laughter is. Fear is not a part of your inheritance. Um, fear belongs to hell. It's the inheritance of the demonic. Now let me show you this from Scripture. I love when Jesus begins to approach demoniacs or people possessed. Because the things the demons say are hilarious, are, are really funny. So Matthew 8, verses 29. Behold, they cried out, they being a, a plethora of demons, not just one. They cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Just leave that text there. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, this is funny on several angles. One, the tormentors are worried about being tormented. Okay, the demons who plague humanity, lie to us, deceive, bind us. When Jesus arrives, they're going, you're going to torment us. And they know that there's a time. Okay, so they know there's a time coming when they will be tormented, and they're worried that Jesus came early. So that is the definition of anxiety. It's being worried about what's coming around the bend. Anxiety belongs to demons. It doesn't belong to me. I am not worried about what's coming around the bend. What comes around the bend is glorious. Are you guys following my line of thought? And so Gideon's going to be shown today, I know this is like sweeping big thoughts. Gideon's going to be shown today that fear belongs to the enemy of Israel. And laughter, joy, and confidence, a jubilant heart and spirit. These are the fruit of the Spirit that belong to God's children. And so some of us, the the statistics say that we are the most anxious generation that the world has ever known. Maybe God's leading us into this text today for our ears to perk up and for us to begin to establish within us the strength and dignity of the Proverbs 31 woman that laughs at the days to come. Maybe God is trying to build up within our souls a particular kind of confidence that's established upon our theology not established upon our kind of pseudo-psychology that we learned from Oprah and Dr. Phil. Let's, let's establish it on the truth of the word. Okay, you guys with me so far? All right, let's go to the text, and I'll do my best to make some kind of sense here. Judges chapter 7, verse 9 through 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid, go down and go to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number. And the sand, as the sand that is on the seashore is in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread. It tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent 
and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down and the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the hosts of Midian into your hand. He divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets into their hands and all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets. They smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpet to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all of the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerah, as the border of Abel-Meholah, by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured two princes of Midian, Orab and Zeb. They killed Orab at the rock of Orab and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Orab and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. When all of this is said is done, the man who was hiding in a wine press, so afraid of the Midianites, is standing, holding in his left hand the, the head of a man named Orab, who was one of the kings of the Midianites, and holding in his right hand the head of Zeb, who was also a king of this host. Okay, that night, that night, God said to Gideon, remember the, the night is the, we've done the fleece thing, where Gideon keeps saying to the Lord, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I know it's you. Or if the ground is wet or the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, then I know it's you. Gideon's saying, God, help me, help me, help me, give me courage. And then God said to Gideon, remember, you've got 30,000 men. That's too many. 10,000 men. That's too many. You're going to conquer 130,000 of your enemies with 300 men. So that night, God says to Gideon, go down and take the territory of the Midianites. Remember, there are 130,000 camped in a valley. The scripture says they looked like locusts. Their camels were without number, like sand of the seashore. Seashore. As Gideon looked out, there were so many. And so God says to Gideon, but if you're afraid, go down to the camp with your servant, and I'll tell you what's going to happen. Now, the obvious implication of the text is that Gideon was afraid because he took his servant and he went down to listen to the things the Midianite warriors were saying. What he hears as he's listening is one Midianite warrior saying to another Midianite warrior, I had a dream. And in this dream, there was a cake of barley. And the cake of barley rolled down a hill and it crashed into a tent of Midian. And his his comrade, the fellow soldiers, he, he interprets the dream. He interprets it by saying this, that cake of barley was Gideon and the tent was the Midianites. And the dream tells us that God has given Gideon 
the house of Midian. And in other words, as Gideon comes down into the valley to listen to the things that his enemies are saying, they are dreaming prophetic dreams about their own destruction. Barley is the bread of the poor. Uh, it's common bread. And so the fact that there was a cake of barley, it's, they interpret that to mean the poor man is going to roll down. A little cake of barley It's going to roll down and destroy our whole tent. God allows Gideon to see his enemies with prophetic terror. And, and what we're seeing is God saying, okay, Gideon, I'm going to show you who should be afraid and who shouldn't. And so the enemies of Gideon are up in the middle of the night biting their nails. We know through prophecy that God has given us into Gideon's hands. The scripture says that Gideon, as he heard this, he worshiped. That is the plight of the Christian to worship the sovereign God of the future while our enemies bite their nails. So at this, Gideon goes back to the, uh, the spring where his 300 are gathered and he tells them, um, this is what we're going to do. Now the plan that he contrives is kind of crazy. It seems to me that the plan came from the Lord and was a part of his conversation with the Lord. That seems to be implied that what they do, God told Gideon they should do. Now, what they're going to do is this. Each soldier, each uh, the 300 soldiers are going to be broken up into uh, groups of 100. So now we have three groups of 100. And each soldier is going to carry in one hand a trumpet and in the other hand a jar with a torch that's lit on the inside of it. Now, imagine this. I've got a trumpet in this hand. I've got a jar with a torch in this hand. Where do you see me carrying a shield? Where's my spear or my sword or my super cool slingshot? I don't got it, right? My hands are full. And so what they do is they they go down and they surround their enemies with no weapons. Quite literally, they have no weapons. And um, at at the charge of Gideon, when Gideon shouts, they blow their trumpets. Um. There are several things I want to say about this. If I could say one, like, sweeping theological thing here really quick. Um, the idea of a trumpet here in the text is obviously not like a brass. Um, it's, it's more like an animal horn that you would blow um, to create this this awful sound, right? This, this, this sound of war. Um, Jewish scholars in rabbinic tradition often talk about the idea of the, the blowing of the horn was supposed to cause the Israelites to remember the day that Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. Okay, go with me here. The day that God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, and Abraham, who's the old man, takes Isaac up the hill and prepares to sacrifice Isaac. And as Abraham, the old man, draws back a dagger to get ready to crucif- or to, to murder his son, what happens? An angel of the Lord says, stop. And there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And God said, I will provide. Right, you guys following the, the story here? So the idea, a lot of times in rabbinic literature, is that when the Israelites heard the sound of the ram's horn, they were supposed to remember that God's provision was provided for Abraham and that God would be the provider and ultimately the one who would, would atone for their sin. And every time they went to war, they blew the trumpet to say, God is our provider. Now, obviously, it doesn't take much biblical knowledge to draw that connect. It's the same place Jesus was crucified, where God did provide. You guys following me? Jesus is the provision of God. 
Isaac didn't need to be crucified. God's only son would be crucified. For the, his blood would atone for our sins. The provision and the future was fully established in the blood of the lamb. He purchased the bride. He established, so when the horn is blown, there's prophetic significance that points even to the cross of Jesus. And when the horn is blown, the, the enemies of God should tremble with fear, not the people of God. They should rejoice because God's provision has arrived. So with one hand, 300 men have horns, and with the other hand, they have a jar with a torch on the inside so that the light is not yet being shown. Does that make sense? You can't see the light because the torch is covering it. Uh, the torch is not, the light's not fully shown. So when Gideon shouts, they blow the trumpet, and they break the jar, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's 300 torches surrounding the camp of Midian. Now, logically speaking, if you were to wake up in the middle of the night in this scenario, and you heard 300 trumpets, and you saw 300 torches, you would not think there are 300 men. You would think there are probably 300 groups of men. Right? Like, you would, you would think, surely, there, it wouldn't even cross your mind that 300 men are carrying trumpets and torches. You would think that each group of soldiers had one man with a trumpet and a torch. So now what looks like, what they what is only 300 men, they assume is 300 sects of men. And they all out panic. And they start uh, kind of in the waking up from sleep, in the middle of the night, they start just swinging their, their swords kind of violently left and right. They're in total upheaval. And they begin to murder one another, fight everyone who comes this way. And the 130,000 Midianites and the Melchites begin to take off and run. Now, what are they running from? 300 men without weapons. I want to suggest, and, I, and again, this feels like, I can't think of the term, like I'm, like I'm being sacrilegious or something. I want to suggest that God does stuff like this sometimes just because it's funny. And, and I, this is coming from pure theology here. Like, I... When God wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he destroyed it with fire. When God wanted to destroy the Egyptians who were pursuing Israel, he called a great sea to swarm on top of them. He tricks the Midianites because it's funny. Um, he is, um, C.S. Lewis, some of my favorite writers would probably call this cheeky. This is a cheeky way to defeat your enemies. He, he could have defeated them with strength, but he outwitted them in a way that for the rest of their lives, they were going to have to tell the story how about 300 men with, with trumpets and jars scared them into killing each other. Go back to your kings and tell them that you ran away from 300 men. That you got, you got, you had you panicked. Um, panic is, this is too much information. The, the, the etymology of the word panic, it comes from the Greek god Pan. Um, do you remember the Greek god Pan is that, that, that goat dude, okay, with the, with the, with the horns and the goat butt. Um, I told you before that Pastor Seth likes to imitate um, a goat man from time to time. It's really weird. Um, Pan was known to, um, in the forest, cause a shriek of noise that would cause animals and herds of animals just to freak out and panic. And there are a few like Greek mythological stories where Pan goes to war with a friend and Pan doesn't really have a weapon, but he just shrieks or he blows a horn or something, and everyone just goes into, like, Pan's superpower is that he makes people uh, act out, out of total illogical, irrational fear. That's where the word panic gets its term. 
Um, and what we find in the text today is these men just panicked. Irrational fear. They reacted to something that they should not have been afraid of. They, they totally trembled. And, and I'm suggesting again that God did it that way only because, only for pure comedic relief. Only, only for the chuckle of heaven. Only so that, that, that the saints who read this story for generations to come would, would acknowledge not only is God sovereignly strong, okay, follow my line of thought. Again, Egypt is pursuing Israel. And God, God shows off his omnipotent power over the seas. He causes the seas to split, rise up, and then he just throws them down on top of Egypt. And as we read that story, we were reminded that God's strength is unmatched, right? He's, he's sovereign over even the natural elements. When Jesus tells a storm to sit down and stop, he's sovereign over the natural elements. When we read this story, nothing in us is reminded necessarily of God's sovereign power over even creation. What God reminds us in, in this story is that he's the wittiest of the witty. That he is, he cannot be out. He's reminding us again that, that you're playing checkers trying to outdo me, and I'm playing chess, and I'm laughing about it. He's reminding us again that as the nations rage and plot about how to destroy Israel, he leans back and laughs with jubilant joy because all of their plotting is really amateur compared to the excellence of his wisdom. The text says that at this point, when the Midianites began to run, the soldiers who were dismissed, the other 27,300, 700, now gather back and begin to chase the, the enemies of Israel out of Israel, all the way back to the Jordan. And eventually, two of the kings lose their heads, and they put the heads of these men in the hands of Gideon. And the climax of the story today is the man who was hiding in the winepress, called a man of valor, now stands before all of Israel, the left hand one one head of a king and the right hand the head of the other king, and no longer will Israel be tormented by the evil, injustice, iniquity of the Midianites and the Amalekites, and their victory was purchased solely by the superior wisdom and tactic of their God. Now where does that where does that lead us? Where does that lead us to settle in us, settle in our souls. I'll give you this. If you were to embrace the idea that your life is up to chance, there would be a reason, a logical reason, to live with an underlying anxiety. I'll give you that. If you believe that the future is just chaos, ready to happen, then anxiety is a logical inference. But you would then have to give me that if the future actually belongs to Jesus and he's sovereign over it, he's declared to us what's to come, and he's declared covenantally, contractually, that he loves you with an endless love that cannot be shaken, you would have to give to me, therefore, that if the future belongs to the God who loves you endlessly, then there is no reason to bite your nails at night. And if, we, if we're just doing logic here, you would have to give me that the proper response of the Christian is to learn day after day how to walk in jubilant joy, how to walk in this, this confidence and this strength that's not the pseudo-psychology looking in the mirror telling yourself how great you are. Christianity actually calls you to do the opposite, to remember your brokenness and your frailty. It's a different looking. 
I'm not looking in the mirror. I'm looking at the text of Scripture, at my theology, and at the prophetic declaration of this book, which says, right around the corner, the feet of Christ Jesus will touch the Mount of Olives. And all injustice will be eradicated. And all of the sick will be healed. And the saints of God will spend eternity in the presence of the bridegroom. Which says that he is currently preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The book says that there's a banquet ahead. The book says no higher depth, width, breadth can separate me from the violent love of the one who holds tomorrow. Now, now I said this to, to the team earlier, and I've said this to you guys like 150 times. Let's do it again. I'm, I got this little suspicion, this little, little inkling suspicion in the back of my head that in about a year, the world's going to be buck wild crazy again. I got, you know, it's just, just lingering. I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I think that this time, pandemic, political upheaval, racial riots, whatever comes, I think this time for us as a house, we've got to learn to stand on our feet and say, all of y'all's crazy, chaotic garbage that's going on out there, that's dumb. Um, I, I, I'm not afraid of all of your idiosyncrasies. I'm not afraid of all your garbage. I am, I'm resting fully in what God has done and will do and will accomplish in me in the days to come. I wanted to show you one more thing that I totally missed. And, and Brandon, could you take me back to the quotes that I, was, I said I was going to hit earlier and I didn't? This week as I'm pondering these thoughts, I was thinking again about, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was that German theologian who tried to participate in the overthrow of Hitler and ended up uh, losing his life at the very end of World War II. Um, and I was, I was reading some quotes of, that Bonhoeffer, about Bonhoeffer, as he got ready to be hung. He was hung on kind of a cinder block gallow. Um, and, and I was thinking about this. This is, historically speaking, now let me say this first of all. My wife reads everything about World War II. Every conspiracy theory about Hitler, I know, okay? I've heard that he might be in Latin America. I've heard that the skeleton that they, they grew up from the ground was a woman and not a man. I mean, I've heard every conspiracy theory, okay? But putting all that aside, let's just assume that history that we were taught is true. History says that on April 30th, 1945, Hitler put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger out of anxiety and fear uh, of what was to come because fear belongs to the enemies of God. History says that roughly two weeks earlier, on April 9th of 1945, the Nazi regime brought Dietrich Bonhoeffer to the gallows to be hung for his participation in the plot to overthrow Hitler and that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, although his life was getting ready to end, walked in total confidence and joy. Fear belonged to Hitler. Anxiety belonged to Hitler with a pistol to his head. Anxiety did not belong to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the theologian who was grounded in his understanding of God. And so here are a few quotes that people said about Bonhoeffer in his last days. Uh, one fellow prisoner said this, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor and praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way his lovable man prayed and so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, this is actually a doctor talking about uh, the day that he died. 
At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Um, gun to his head, worried about what's to come. Bonhoeffer goes to the gallows, totally submissive to the will of God, in devout prayer with peace. And the moment he breathes his last breath, he is caught in the presence of Jesus and all things are redeemed. The, mo- the moment Hitler breathes his last breath, you can only imagine what was to come. Who, the, the, the emphasis that I'm trying to lead you to is, who does fear belong to? Where, where's anxiety rooted and who should carry it? And, and I'm suggesting that anxiety is, is rooted in a fear, a terror of what might be around the bend. A terror of what might happen after the next political cycle. A terror of what might happen if the school board keeps doing the things the school board is doing. A terror of what might happen if radical Islam gains a foothold in the United States. A terror of what might be to come. And and even if some of those things come, the Christian does not live in terror of the future. The Christian puts his head into the crown and intercedes and cries out for the day in which Jesus will step his foot on Mount of Olives and all will just be right. Emma, if you want to come for me, altar team, if you want to get into place. I I want to just say again, God is teaching us to enter into the laughter of heaven. He's teaching us the lesson of the Proverbs 31 woman as she laughs at the future. Laughter belongs to the Christian. God is sovereign. God loves me. And the future is his. The end is near. Go ahead and stand to your feet and we'll get ready to wind down.